The Small Business Administration might be a small agency, but it has outsized influence over the economy. The pandemic highlighted shortcomings in the SBA, including constituents' access to credit, customer service, and entrepreneurial development. That's according to a task force convened by the Bipartisan Policy Center. And it has a list of recommendations for reform. Joining me with more, the task force co-chairs, former SBA Associate Administrator in the Office of Capital Access, Anne-Marie Malam. Ms. Malam, good to have you with us. Thank you. Nice to be here. And the former Chief of Staff and Chief Operating Officer of SBA, Pradeep Balur. Mr. Balur, good to have you with us. Likewise, Tom. Thank you for having us. And tell us what it is you were looking at here. SBA had a huge burden during the pandemic, which showed a lot of administrative and oversight and controls weakness. But uh, what were you really looking at here? The Bipartisan Policy Center, Tom, as you mentioned, convened this task force about 18 months ago to understand how best to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of SBA. And the timing was perfect. As you know, SBA was just coming off this massive pandemic assistance, wherein they distributed more than a trillion dollars in loans to small businesses, which served as a lifeline to many of these businesses during the pandemic. So we wanted to understand what went right and what went wrong. On top of that, we spoke to dozens of former administration officials and subject matter experts to understand how can we make SBA better. That was the crux of our project. And is it fair to say one of the things you did not focus on as much was the spending accountability because there's lots of people looking at that already. You were looking at programs themselves, fair to say? We looked at it from the perspective of you know, what exactly needs to be done to increase outreach while managing downside risk. So in terms of the accountability, we looked at it from the perspective of how do you manage risk from that context. All right. What were your top line findings? Some of the things mentioned in the highlights include access to capital. Anne-Marie, tell us more about that one. Well, through the years, not just in the recent pandemic years, through the years, SBA has, like many governmental agencies, has become harder to deal with, more complicated, procedurally, fewer and fewer lenders are participating. Bottom line, small dollar loans are decreasing annually to the point of practically non-existence. And it's very obvious that the SBA really needs to deploy technology and simplify the procedures. Some of the offshoots of the change over the years is that now there are a handful of highly concentrated SBA lenders, and and the SBA has really not significantly looked at those separately. And recently, they made some rules that really opens the door to lenders. Instead of figuring out how to work with the 5,000 lenders in the program that have done such an amazing job through the last 50 years, they have now open the doors to bring in other lenders, I expect will expose the agency to severe risk. So those issues we addressed, and there are really several very, very good uh, recommendations. I think the task force absolutely covered the arena for the SBA, and I really hope that the necessary people will take a look at this report, and we're hoping to get it out. That's the 7A program, which has been central to SBA for really decades, fair to say. Yes, that is the central loan program. It was the beginning. The beauty of the program is Congress in its wisdom back in the Eisenhower years set it up as a program not to compete with private enterprise, but instead to partner with banks. The SBA, as you know, guarantees loans that banks just can't quite make to small businesses that don't have enough collateral, don't have a wealthy uncle to guarantee the loan. So this partnership has worked 
so well. Really, I mean, our country has been built with small businesses through the years, and yet it's eroded recently because it's just gotten so complicated and difficult, and they haven't figured out how to really deploy technology. It's got to be deployed. Interesting. And there's also the issue of whether enough people even know about SBA programs, 7A or otherwise, that gets to the issue of marketing, outreach, and that kind of thing. That's right, Tom. In spite of the fact that SBA received massive publicity during the pandemic, most small businesses are not aware of the full breadth of SBA's offerings. So some of our recommendations were more along the lines of how can we make sure that the district offices step out and create an outreach, especially to some of these underserved communities? Also, make sure that the district offices work in conjunction with other federal agencies so as to increase awareness. And lastly, as you know, SBA has a lot of these resource partners, such as small business development centers, women business centers, and so forth. The question was, how can we make sure that these centers provide holistic services so that in addition to some of the things, training and counseling that they do, they can also help some of these small businesses understand how to apply and gain access to credit and so forth. We're speaking with Pradeep Balur. He's former chief of staff and chief operating officer of the Small Business Administration and with Anne-Marie Malam. She's former associate administrator in SBA's Office of Capital Access. They are co-chairs of the Bipartisan Policy Center study of the SBA. And I wanted to ask about the third general area that you spoke about in the report, and that's entrepreneurial development. That word is sort of more in vogue than it was maybe in the Eisenhower era, but certainly I think Republicans and Democrats alike understand the importance of entrepreneurialism to the United States economy and general vibrancy. And let me simplify that term for you, Tom. It's essentially counseling and training services. One of the things we looked at was how do we improve the effectiveness and efficiency of these counseling and training services? As you know, SPA provides counseling and training services to hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs each year through all of these brick and mortar training partners, such as the small business development centers, women's business centers, and so forth. One of the things that we suggested was we need to improve the coordination and standardization across these centers so that they have a standard curriculum. They have a standard way of delivering the curriculum as well as measuring the outcomes of the training programs. We also provide a recommendation whereby we said, SBA has built a very good e-learning platform called Ascent. It's focused on women entrepreneurs. And right now about 150,000 women entrepreneurs come and avail of training and counseling services through the brick and mortar centers. But there are more than 10 million women entrepreneurs. Now with this e-learning platform, they can avail of these services 24 by 7 via online means. So our recommendation was to SBA to expand this Ascent platform to the other demographics so that the e-learning platform can work in conjunction with the brick-and-mortar centers so that SBA can increase its outreach while improving the standardization across all these different centers. And that gets to the question when you speak of women entrepreneurs of the idea that 
whether SBA programs, whether for credit or for entrepreneurial training, whatever it might be, are equally accessible by and utilized across all of the different demographics and what they commonly call historically underutilized groups. What did you find there? And do they have work to do there? One of the things about that, Tom, that I'd like to add is one of the things that was clear in the pandemic when the SBA worked more closely with a handful of fintech firms was that the PPP loans, when fintechs were involved, did reach the underserved markets better. The percentages were just higher. Also, we know that in the very smallest of loans, the percentages are are higher of loans that go to African-American-owned companies, women-owned companies, veterans, rural companies. And that's another reason to really put the focus and, and try to figure out how to deploy technology without increasing credit risk to the point of being detrimental to the whole program. Got it. So there's a lot of issues. Then there's administrative burden, which is something the SBA sounds like it needs to reduce, and then greater adoption of technology. What's the reaction been so far on Capitol Hill to this report and from the SBA itself, if they've reacted at all? From the Capitol Hill perspective, Tom, I think both sides of the aisle are in agreement By the way, SBA is the only place, I think, where we see bipartisanship on the Hill. Well, veterans. And veterans, that's right. (laughs) And both sides are in agreement. As Anne-Marie was alluding to, one of the things that worked well during the pandemic was leveraging digital tools through the fintechs to reach to these underserved populations, such as minorities, women, rural customers, and so forth. But... It was a double-edged sword because it increased the risk significantly. So both sides of the aisle and Congress want to leverage the digital tools while managing the downside risk. And we can take numerous lessons from how it was handled during the pandemic. Anne-Marie, final comment? Well, I think one thing I'd like to say is one of the reasons why it was very uh, encouraging and I felt this work of this committee was so important is because the SBA has been so successful an extremely bipartisan effort through the years and has clearly supported American small businesses in a way that everybody has agreed has been beneficial to our entire economy. So it's worthwhile for us to spend the time to try to help the SBA go forward in the years to come. And the group that was involved with this and all the many people we spoke to, it was an effort worth undertaking. And certainly the recommendations are, are well worth anybody's time to take a look at. Anne-Marie Malam is a former associate administrator in the Office of Capital Access of the Small Business Administration. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And Pradeep Balur is former chief of staff and chief operating officer at the SBA. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Tom. Appreciate it. And they are both co-chairs of the Bipartisan Policy Center study of the SBA. We'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? 
And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. 
So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.